Well, good morning, church. It is wonderful to see you here today. Looking pretty good for the most part. Just kidding, y'all look wonderful. What an insult. You look pretty good for the most part. You guys are just going to let me get away with it. Well, you don't look so hot yourself, pal. The tomato comes flying. The proverbial tomato, right? If anybody needs, thank you, Devin, for going ahead and acting that out. I'm going to stop right there. If you need a Bible, we want to get one put in your hand. So if you happen to forget one, we want to make sure you're able to follow along with us. And uh, today we're going to, uh, yeah, just raise your hand if you need a Bible, and they'll put one, they'll find you and put it right there in your hand. Uh, If you're good to go, then let's take our Bibles or whatever manner you happen to be following along with us and make our way uh, to the prophet Zephaniah, right? Not Zechariah. If you go there, you'll be reading something different. Going to Zephaniah, we're going to finish the book today, uh, chapter 3, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 20. In a message that I have entitled, Regathering, Restoring, and Rejoicing. Okay, so let's take our hearts to the Lord. God, we just want to say thank you for gathering us here today. Lord, you are good, and uh, Lord, your goodness uh, toward us is unmerited. We, we don't understand why. We know we don't deserve it, but we're so grateful for it. And we pray that today you would give us ears to hear you, Lord, that you would touch our hearts, that you would change our lives, that you'd transform us from glory to greater glory as by your spirit into your image. And we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, last week, I referenced to you 1 Peter chapter 4, that judgment begins in the house of God. And if it begins with us first, then what will become of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And it's certainly something worth considering. Now, conversely, we should also say this, that if God holds the heathen accountable for sin, how much more his own people? Uh, In other words, the ungodly lead lives of ungodliness. Why? Well, because they're ungodly, right? They, they don't claim to know God. They don't seek after the Lord. They don't even claim a desire to be pleasing to the Lord. Yet their sin is still an offense against the holiness of the Lord. And as our creator, we're accountable to him whether we acknowledge him or not. We understand that, right? He is our creator. We are accountable to him whether we acknowledge him or not. Now, if God holds those accountable who are not mindful of him, how much more those who know what God expects yet deliberately sin against him. You see, God's people are to be different from those who aren't his people, a light shining in the darkness, the salt of the earth. But as Jesus said, what good is salt if it loses its flavor, its ability to preserve? So though we're, and we find ourselves, I find myself saying this a lot, though we're in the world, we're not to be of the world. Why? Because Christ has called us out of the world. And so as for you and me, our admonition is of Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, do not be conformed to, that is fashioned after or shaped by this world. Now in verses 4 through 15 of chapter 2, God took aim, if you remember right, at the surrounding nations uh, around Judah 
and Jerusalem. Now, as we enter into chapter 3, he draws his attention back to Judah, and he begins to zero in on the city of Jerusalem. So you're there with me. Let's take and turn our attention, shall we, to, begin, uh, to verse 1, chapter 3, where we begin. Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted, to the oppressing city. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. And she has not drawn near to her God. Her princes in her midst are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves, ravenous in other words, that leave not a bone till morning. Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. Well, because of the convenience of chapter breaks and the fact that you know we didn't read through the book of Zephaniah in one sitting, we have the kind of the capacity of a mental reset when we open our Bibles from week to week. But if you were to follow the flow out of chapter 2 into chapter 3 with no break, and let's say you were hearing the reading of this as a Jew in about 625, 630 BC, you might be feeling pretty good about what you're listening to when you come out of what we call chapter 2 into what's become uh, chapter 3 in the first verse because God has been, you remember, we're, we're kind of finding our flow again. God has been pronouncing judgment on the nations. Uh, specifically, uh, as chapter 2 is concluding, he's been speaking to or dealing with the nation of uh, Assyria to the north and how he would make its capital city, Nineveh, a desolation. Now the Assyrians were those who had taken the ten northern tribes of Israel into captivity about a hundred years earlier. And here God is pronouncing judgment, desolation upon them because of their pride and their arrogance. You know, it would become a place, he said, for beasts to lie down, just nothing but ruins. And so as far as we, the reader, are concerned, God is still pronouncing judgment upon them as he enters in to chapter 3 and says, woe to her who is rebellious and polluted to the oppressing city. But then as Zephaniah begins to elaborate on their refusal to trust in the Lord, to draw near to her God, he speaks of prophets and priests, the sanctuary and the law. Well, it becomes increasingly, might I say, alarmingly clear. He's speaking now not to the pagan nations that surround Judah, but to the people of God within Judah, and he draws a bead on what's supposed to be the pure city, the holy city of Jerusalem, but God calls it rebellious, polluted, oppressing, because rather than receiving the instruction of God's word, they rebelled against it. Rather than liberating and helping those in need, they oppressed their people, profited from the people, and enriched themselves at their citizens' expense. He says, they're a polluted city. Now, when God calls Jerusalem a polluted city, he's not saying that they have a horrific carbon footprint. You know, that they need to engage in the Green New Deal 
or, you know, get things right with their climate control because they're so polluted, you see. No, he's not speaking about things that pertain to the physical that are on the outside, you see, of his people. He's speaking of things spiritual, of what's happening on the inside of his people. Now, we can certainly acknowledge, can't we, that that what's happening on the inside of man will become evident on the outside, and what causes filth on the outside is merely a reflection of the filth on the inside, and you can probably take that about as far as you want to go. You know, when a man gets right with God, it it might evidence itself in something as simple as the fact as he won't dump his garbage on his neighbor's property or another man's property. He won't dump a bunch of uh, poisonous chemicals into lakes or streams or whatever. But if I'm not right with God, those kinds of things may not move me at all. You know, if a person's right with God, his speech, her speech, won't be perverted. It'll be pure. Uh, What's in my heart, Jesus said, will surface through my lips. My actions will be moral, not immoral. And I won't try to justify my sin before God. I'll I'll long to lead a life that's set apart to God, that's well-pleasing to God. Again, you can take that principle about as far as you want to go. But when God speaks of the polluted city, he's speaking spiritually. He's speaking inwardly, you see, not physically. And he calls Jerusalem rebellious, polluted, and oppressing, refusing to regard the rights of her people. And rather than fight for the needs of the people, she oppressed them, enriched herself off of them. And God indicts them on four counts. If you're an underliner, a note taker, a margin etcher, whatever, we might consider it to be the root of Jerusalem's sin. Number one, he says right here, I believe it's in the second verse, yeah, in the second verse, she has not obeyed his voice. Now, it wasn't that God wasn't speaking to them, it's that they weren't listening to him. They weren't heeding him. They weren't obeying him. Guys, listen, it's a key characteristic of God's people, isn't it? Ears to hear. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow. That is, they obey me. They do what I say. They go where I lead. Listen, as a child of God, if the Lord is speaking to your heart, you tend to know it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, now, it may be through a Bible study like this. Here you are today. It's Maybe it's my voice that's ringing through your ears, but maybe God's Spirit is moving and ministering to your heart, bringing something to your attention, drawing something out for you to think through, perhaps repent of or build upon or whatever the case may be. And so you're hearing His voice moving and ministering to you. It, it may be in a time of devotion, a quiet time. Or I've discovered sometimes the Lord may just interrupt what you're doing and and direct you or correct you, maybe give some word of insight or instruction to you. And ladies and gentlemen, if there's any voice for the sheep to obey, we could agree, couldn't we? It should be the voice of the shepherd. 
but she has not obeyed his voice. Now one way that God speaks directly to you and to me is through his written word. So often we're like, God speak to me. You know, and I wonder if he's kind of like, I have, read your Bible, you know? I mean, there's so much direction, so much correction, so much instruction in righteousness. Sometimes we worry about what we don't know. God would have us be concerned about what we should know, what we do know. You see, Paul said it like this. He said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, notice, for doctrine or teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God might be complete, that is, thoroughly equipped, not not meagerly equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Listen, if you want to hear from God, it's imperative you spend time in his word. She has not obeyed his voice. Guys, it's not that they didn't know scripture is that they just deliberately didn't obey what God had said. And she has not received correction. You might jot it down so you can just read it later. I'll give you a little bit of extra credit work as we go that you can look up later if you like. God had promised to the nation of Israel blessing through obedience and uh, discipline as a result of disobedience, that God said that he would punish Israel for disobeying his word. He used words like terror, wasting disease and fever, famine, wartime defeat. He said, and after all of this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. And over and over again, he spoke of the accumulation of devastation that he would bring upon them if they refused to receive his correction. But they were a lot like you are and I am. When the discipline came, they didn't receive the correction. They chalked it up to, I don't know, tough times, difficult days, rough patches that we should push through. You know, these little quaint sayings that we like to bolster ourselves by. Isn't it amazing how we as people have a tendency to resist correction? Have you noticed that? You look at me like, no, it must be just you. <laughs> no. Now, I'm not saying that every rough patch in life is God's hand of discipline upon us. But certainly we should at least allow it to cause us to stop and search our heart and seek the Lord. I mean, it could be simply that God is just uh, growing us. Yeah, he's just teaching us to walk by faith, to trust in him and all of that, you see. But if there's sin in my life, perhaps God's trying to get my attention. But so often when things begin to press down on us rather than cry out to God, the tendency for people can so often be to begin to doubt or get mad at God. You know, we put up our defenses. 
You know, you read through the book of Revelation and you see the judgments that's being poured out. And after all this, John says, yet the people didn't repent, but they rebelled and they, they dig in their heels. And we, we do these kinds of things. We root down in our stubbornness. She has not received his correction. And she has not trusted in the Lord. It, it, that's number three. So number one, hasn't obeyed. Number two, hasn't received correction. Number three, she has not trusted in the Lord. And guys, it's not that God had, had ever given her a reason to not trust him, but in openly denying and defying God's word and God's promises, it becomes evident, doesn't it? She hasn't trusted in the Lord. And finally, he says, she has not drawn near to her God. Family, at the root of it all is this. God longs for a relationship with his people. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. But in drifting away from God, rather than, than drawing near to God, well, they've gone their own way. All we like sheep have gone astray, right? And they are refusing to return, refusing to repent, Guys, God would have us, I don't know what's going on in your life today. I don't know what's happening, you see, with regard to where you're at spiritually. But I'm just going to say, God would have us return to him. Draw near to him. He would have us grow in our relationship with him. Verse 2 really of the third chapter of the book of Zephaniah is what we might consider the essence of what it means to be a child of God if you just take the negative and you flip it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Number one, uh, obedience to his word. Uh, number two, the receiving of correction. Again, you can write it down so you can read it later. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11, whom the Lord loves he chastens, he disciplines, he corrects. But guys, it's up to you and me if we're going to walk in it, if we're going to receive it or reject that discipline, that, that correction. And number three, we trust. You know, we're to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. Lean not on our own understanding. Guys, we're saved by grace through faith. Yes, in Christ. And listen, from there, nothing changes. We grow by grace through faith. We trust in the precepts and the principles and the promises of the word of God. And number four, we're to draw near to God. That is, we're to intentionally pursue a relationship with him. Again, if you write it down, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 22. But this was not the case in Judah. It was not the case in the privileged city of Jerusalem. As to where the political leaders, that is the princes and the judges, should have been protecting the flock, they were devouring the flock through insatiable greed, using them as a platform for a power and wealth. But guys, the religious leaders were just as bad. The prophets, he says, were insolent. That is, they were reckless. They just look, it's like the, the, the itching ear ministry, right? Just tell me, don't tell me what I need to, to know. Tell me what I want to hear. Make me feel good about what's coming down the pike. And as you go through the prophet Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, who was contemporary with this, he rebukes all of them for that. The prophet said, I mean, but what will you do in the end, you see? 
the priests were polluting the sanctuary. The word of God and the ways of God were being twisted and perverted to serve their own self-seeking ends. Verse five, we read, the Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings justice to light. He never fails. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their fortresses are devastated. I have made their streets desolate with none passing by. Their cities are destroyed. There is no one, no inhabitant. And I said, surely you will fear me. You will receive instruction so that her dwelling would not be cut off despite everything for which I punished her. But they rose early and corrupted all their deeds. Now in verse five, God says, hey, I'm here. And I'm righteous. I'm just. God, guys, God always does the right thing, right? That's what he means. I am righteous. He always does the right thing. But in acting contrary to his righteousness and justice, they're ripening themselves for his judgment. Here's the idea. God had identified himself with Jerusalem, and yet they're misrepresenting him to the people. Are you following me? Can I just say, God doesn't take it lightly when we, when we misrepresent him to the people. Okay? God has said, be holy. Why? For I am holy, God says. The idea being that if God is holy and he lives in me, then my life will reflect his holiness. Now, I won't be perfect, because I still have a sin nature. But the general pattern of my life will be one, you see, that is set apart to God. So if my life belongs to Jesus, well, then I will grow to be more and more like Jesus. When the Holy Spirit, right, that's, that's what he's called, the Holy Spirit lives in you. He will be consistently nudging you and me toward holiness. Guys, I'm giving you lots of extra credit work today, but you might write it down. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. Okay? Just read it later. Look it up later. And guys, you can be mad at me, you can be mad at your preacher, you can be mad at your friend who's encouraging you to knock off what you shouldn't be about, that you might start living a life that God's called you to, but at the end of the day, you guys, your problem, uh, your real problem is with God, not with me or your friend who's, who's challenging you, you see, but God who's called you to, to holiness and, and to righteousness and justice. Here's one more, Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. I'll just tell you what it says. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's what God desires, requires of us. 
And by the way, I'm not going to expound on it, but you might underline it. Verse 5, wonderful verse, but right there, the, the, the next to the last line, if your Bible's laid out like mine, it may not be. But th- these three words, he never fails. Now, is there anything that God can't do? Sure there is. Here's one. He can't fail. Right? That means that he'll never fail you. Now, that doesn't mean that you'll always understand. Guys, his ways are infinitely higher than ours. It it comes back to that, well, that third thing we discussed earlier, doesn't it? Trust. Uh, He never fails. But God points out the nations that he had cut off, made desolate and destroyed, and he says, I said, surely you will will fear me. Surely you now will receive instruction. The idea being what you saw happening around you should have served as a warning to you, as as sort of a a wake-up call as to the fact that I do punish ungodliness. If God cut off other sinful nations, well, then what made them think they'd be some sort of exception? That's the idea. You see, it's interesting, isn't it, how we always think that our sin is somehow the exception. But despite everything, God says they rose early and corrupted all their deeds. Now, when he speaks of rising early, think of like a vacation coming up and you just can't wait to get up and get on the road. You know, or a project you're excited about, so you get up early and you get after it, you know. By the way, very few projects have ever excited me to the point where I'm willing to get up early and get after it. But some of you are like that. And that's what he's saying, that they were excited about. They, they just couldn't wait to get on with their sin. And in one respect, he's saying, you know, they're even more guilty than the pagan nations around them because they had the word of God. You know, they were sinning against a flood of light. Now in verse 8, we see a transition. He says, therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations, notice, to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour uh, on them my indignation, all my fierce anger. Notice, all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. So he's shifting gears. We talk about prophetic telescoping. He begins looking down the runway uh, to the great tribulation when God will deal with every nation. He says, all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Now, if you want a New Testament equivalency, you might write down Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. But this is a time that's written of again and again in the Old Testament, using words like indignation. In the New Testament, words like great tribulation, detailed most, I don't know, uh, readily in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 6 through 19. And Zephaniah states that God will pour out his indignation upon the entire Christ-rejecting world and then he, he will share with us, he will show to us that a new day will dawn. A time of restoration and mercy. The Bible speaks of this 1,000 year of reign, reign of Christ upon the earth where he will rule and reign in righteousness. Notice verse 9, he says, For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord. 
to serve him with one accord from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. And in that day you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and you shall no longer be haughty or arrogant in my holy mountain. And I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. And the remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. Hallelujah, right? Wow. Verses 9 through 13 seem to me to form what we might consider to be bookends in this little uh, subsection. He says in verse 9, for then I will restore to the peoples a pure language. Now some wonder if, if he's speaking of like a one world language. You know, uh, and they point to Hebrew, the Hebrew language for a couple of reasons that we won't dive into. You know, but then others see this as like a, maybe like, is he talking about a reversal of Babel? You know, when God confused the languages of the nations because the people were growing increasingly evil. I don't know, perhaps both are in view. But more than not, I believe a little more simply that it's just pointing to the fact that people won't be communicating in any kind of polluted fashion. You know, no vulgarity, no blasphemy. He says in verse 13, no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. You see this pure language, no lies, no deceitful tongue. Why, why, why the pure language? Look at verse nine again, that they may call on the name of the Lord. The world will worship Jesus Christ as one. Not just Israel, but the world will worship. Pure language, pure worship, salvation, restoration, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord, right? Then they will call on the name of the Lord. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord, Joel 2.32, Acts 2.21, shall be saved. Salvation. To serve him with one accord. What a glorious day it'll be when we worship the Lord and serve the Lord with one accord. You know, no division, no disunity, no disillusionment, no disenchantment, no one feeling like, you know, they're being overlooked or their ideas aren't being heard and so they grow up, you know, whatever the case may be, they're upset and they walk away. No, just serving the Lord with gladness. He says here, with regard to the millennial kingdom, that Israel will be the global superpower, but it won't be accompanied by pride or arrogance. Verse 11, you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Uh, she'll understand, uh, you know, like the trouble with Israel coming up through uh, the Old Testament when Christ came on the scene is they were caught up on the letter of the law, weren't they? It was all this legalism. They thought it was by their works through circumcision and all of this. And he says, no, 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 no longer will there be pride involved. You, there will be a realization, you see, the revelation, not by works, but by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, she stands. There will be no shame in that day. Why? Because the sin that causes shame will have been taken away, cleansed. Now, as for me, I can't wait. Because... I know, and, and you understand that positionally, we have no shame right now. 
positionally. That is, our, sh- our shame, our sin, has been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Praise God. I, I mean, aren't you grateful for that? But practically, so positionally, we have no shame. We've been washed clean, but practically we struggle, don't we? Because we know where we've been. We know what we've done. And, and we're ashamed of our sin. But even as we sang today, you know, I would encourage you that if you're struggling, because there's a difference, you guys. We talk about the difference between godly sorrow and, and, then, and then the condemnation that comes from the enemy, right? And so if, if condemnation is, is gripping you, I'm encouraging you, allow the Lord to give you beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. We call this the beautiful exchange, right? He says, give me your heaviness and I'll give to you in exchange a garment of praise, a realization that the condemnation, therefore there is now no condemnation, you see, for those that are in Christ Jesus. Well, how can he do that? How can he give us beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness? How, How can this happen? Well, because Jesus took care of the source of our shame upon the cross. The Bible says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him, that is Messiah, that is Christ, that is Jesus, the, here's the word, iniquity of us all. But what is the source of shame? It's found in that little word there, iniquity. It means perversity, depravity, guilt, you see. And God has somehow and in some way vicariously laid it upon Jesus in our place. It's Yom Kippur, right? It's the day of atonement. It's the transfer. It's the, it's the sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God. Over and over the picture is painted. The foreshadowing of what would be fulfilled in Christ throughout your Old Testament. And now as we come to Him and we confess our sins before Him, the Bible is clear that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, praise God, of all unrighteousness. Man, one of the most powerful words, right, in your, in your Bible, that three-letter word, all. All unrighteousness. Not some of it, not most of it, you know, not the lion's share of it, but all of it. It's all gone. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far. And I love the fact that he says east from west and not north to south. You've maybe heard me say that before. Why? Because the, from the north to the south, it's a measurable distance. You can actually take off going north and you'll reach the north pole and guess which way you can start going? South. But you can take off going west if you want. Take off, those of you who are directionally challenged, east if you like. And you'll never, you'll never, you'll never go west. You'll just go east forever and ever and ever. Isn't that glorious? There's no room for pride. 
It's his work. Verse 12, we, you know, we walk in humility and thanksgiving before him, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. Verse 14, he says, sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice. Notice, with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy, the king of Israel. The Lord is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. And in that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear, Zion. Let, your hands, uh, let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. Now we sing the song, mighty to save. Now you see it. Mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. And he will rejoice over you with singing. Wow, what an incredible section of scripture. God assuring them of restoration, of salvation, of purity and consecration. Guys, it's more then reason enough to sing and shout and be glad and rejoice with all your heart. Family, I know, I know the interpretation belongs to Israel, but there's application here for you. The Lord has taken away your judgments. Remember, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was laid upon him. How is it that when we enter this place, we don't sing with all of our heart? You see. He has cast out your enemy. In writing to the Colossians about the the work of the cross, Paul said, that Jesus disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, that is, in the work of the cross. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. Now, literally, physically, in this day that he's speaking of, but spiritually, even now, where two or more are... Guys, the Bible teaches that God is enthroned. This is one more reason why we should just... Praise God with all that's within us when we come together. The Bible teaches, Psalm chapter 22 and verse 3, that God is enthroned upon the praises of his people. And he is mighty to save. Verse 17, if God is for you, who can be against you? And look at this. You know, so often we can see God as this giant joy killer in the sky. You know what I'm saying? Always disappointed in us. Always frustrated with us, you know. Always ready to punish us. Just waiting on us to step out of line, you know. But how many of you realize that in truth, God rejoices over you? He rejoices over you with singing. Listen, God loves you. He's redeemed you. He rejoices over you. Jesus told us in Luke 15 that there's joy in heaven when even one sinner repents. 
Why be so reluctant to give to him all of your heart? You see, he loves you. Finally, verse 18, through the end of the the chapter, he says, I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are among you, to whom it is, its reproach is a burden. Behold, at that time I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who were driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. And uh, at that time I will bring you back. Even at the time uh, I gather you, for I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. Notice words like this, I will gather, I will save, I will bring you back. Now back in verse 18, we see another characteristic of the people of God. We've talked about obedience, receiving correction, trusting, drawing near. Here's one, participation in the appointed assembly. Again, interpretation Israel, application you and me, because he's talking about the appointed feasts and these kinds of things that they were were becoming burdensome to them because people were kind of, uh, what's the word he uses here, Uh, sorrowing over them because it was becoming a reproach, you see. Oh, you go to church, (laughs) you see. Well, we have that appointed assembly as well, don't we? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, we, we call it going to church. And it's not a matter of salvation, but the Bible doesn't really leave it out there like take it or leave it either. And guys, the incentive shouldn't be, you know, why do we go to church? Well, it shouldn't be based on how good the worship band is, you know, or how good the preacher makes you feel, or whether or not the kids enjoy it. You know, we hear all of that, right? The incentive is obedience to the word of God. it's, It's where we worship corporately. It's where we encourage and pray for one another with regularity, you see. It's a place of accountability, somewhere where we're challenged to keep growing spiritually. It's where we learn God's word and serve the body. And when you quit coming around, you guys, it's just, it's just easier to begin to drift and become more callous to the things of God, you know? It's good to be in the presence of the people of God. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Where's Karen? You, Karen, we're gonna make our way to our close here, so if you wanna come on up. But I love what God says in verse 19. <laughs> if you're like me, you underline these kinds of words. He says, I will save the lame. I will save the lame. Why? Because that's me. You know, again, I get it, interpretation versus application, but I'm so glad that God delights to save the lame. And once again, to emphasize the divine authority of his message as well as the certainty of God's comfort, Zephaniah ended his book with the words, says the Lord. Guys, difficulty may await you. Dark days may be in front of you. That's what we've read throughout Zephaniah with regard to what was going on for them specifically, historically, in in the application we've gleaned. 
as a body or individually or whatever. But ultimately, eternally, you will rest in God's love. Think about that. There will be singing, shouting, rejoicing. Guys, whether you get 70, maybe 80, maybe 100 years on this earth, what is it? It's a vapor in the eternal spectrum. But here's the thing, you guys. This life, if you're a child of God, this life is as bad as it's ever going to get for you. Think about that. Beyond that, it's only going to get better. Incalculably, immeasurably better. For the next 10 trillion years and forevermore, And so take heart and have hope. Rest assured, God will see you through and rejoicing awaits you. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. God, may we have ears to hear you today. God, that we not be a people who, as you have shown, you know, correction maybe around us or something, God, maybe even specifically that's taken place uh, to or with us or whatever the case may be, but that we not root down in rebellion and stubbornness, but that, God, we just have repentant hearts regardless, Lord, that we be not polluted but pure. God, that we be eager to obey your voice receive your correction, trust in and draw near to you. And we hasten the day that you will reign in righteousness over all the earth. We thank you that you are a God of salvation. You are mighty to save. You are a God of restoration. And we're just asking God that you would renew our hearts today. Guys, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I just want to give you a quick minute here. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done, what you may be caught up in. I don't know. What I do know is that God can set you free and save you today. He is mighty to save. And He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. I just encourage you to give him your heart today. And so if you've not known the Lord, you've never come to give your heart to the Lord, I want to invite you to to do that even right here, right now. I'd love to pray for you. All you've got to do is show me who you are. If the Lord is speaking to you, if he's knocking on the door of your heart, we talked about this today, if you, will, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Open your heart and receive Jesus Christ. Can I pray for you? If that's you, just raise your hand. And if I see your hand, I'll, I'll acknowledge it. God bless you. I see you. You can put your hand down if you like. Anyone else, the Lord just today is the day of salvation for you. Right on. Who else the Lord's speaking to today? Okay. 
Lord, I just want to thank you, Lord, for hearts that are, are turning toward you, turning away from sin, and turning to you today. And listen, as we, as we were saying earlier, the Bible is clear that all sin, all have fallen short of the glory of God. But if we'll confess our sin, he is faithful, he is just to forgive us, to cleanse us of, of all unrighteousness. Remember that, that glorious promise? So I just encourage you, wherever you're at, you're calling upon the Lord, you're turning your heart to the Lord, just, just come to him, just in your heart, and just tell him, just say, Lord, I, I am a sinner. And I'm asking you even now to forgive me of my sin, to come into my heart, and to fill me with the the person and the power of your Holy Spirit. Help me to live my life for you from this day forward. And Lord, thank you for putting my name in your book of life. I just want to encourage you that if you pray a prayer like that, it, now, number one, it's not a prayer that saves you, it's Jesus who saves you. You, you believe in the Lord. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not, not from the, the head, so to speak, but from the heart, right? For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. But so often what's in our hearts is, is made manifest through our words. So if you're praying from the heart, the Lord has heard you. He has come into you by the power of His Spirit. And He has made you new. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. And I'm telling you right now, there's a party going on in heaven and it's got your name attached to it. Just receive that. Rejoice in that. As for the rest of us, we're just kind of marinating in this moment, maybe thinking through some things that we've been made aware of today or brought into the insight or maybe had nothing to do with anything that came from my mouth but something the Lord just spoke to you and my question to you as you're sitting there thinking about it is what are you going to do about it now? How is it going to make a difference when you walk out these doors? What's going to change in your life? Give God His way. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We love you so much. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.